Today we're going to be in John chapter 3, starting with verse 16, the remainder of the chapter. Now, the last time we looked at, when we covered the first part of the chapter, we looked at Nicodemus' meeting with Jesus, in which the Lord Jesus gives one of the most important teachings in the entire scripture about how to be saved. And I I covered this before. Some come into church, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible. Am I saved? How do I know if I'm saved? Is Jesus the only way? What about this religion versus that religion? And Jesus really answers all of those questions in this short discourse with Nicodemus. So today we're going to finish the chapter, and we're going to see that the first part was really a crescendo, really an increasing of teachings until he really got the main crux of what it means to be born again. Now, at the the next part, it's going to be a little bit more difficult as far as understanding the harder things of the scripture, and, and we'll cover that. So we left off with Nicodemus, successful, a religious leader, from taking the, all the Gospels into account, he probably was wealthy. And he comes to Jesus at night to learn more about spiritual things. What does it mean to be born again? Does it mean that we just call ourselves born-again Christians and I give myself a label and I have a name tag that says I'm a born-again Christian and I'm saved? Absolutely not. Is it a religion versus a religion? No. It's not a moniker. It's not you know something I can do. It's to be born again of the Spirit. And really... There's one word that sums up what it means to be born again, and what it means is it's a relationship that we have with God. And I have this discussion many times with people who don't understand the whole relationship issue, and I say, well, you have a relationship with your spouse, a relationship with your kids, your siblings. Those relationships, God gave you that ability, because think about it, we're only a combination of like 13 elements that when we die, we break down and go back into the ground. So what sets us apart from the dirt? (laughs) What sets us apart from the animal kingdom, the plants? The, the, The ability that God gave us to have relationships. So why would we give God any less than we have with each other? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Some relationships are, are enjoyable. They, they uh, give us encouragement. Some relationships cause us a lot of pain. And then when we work through them, the relationship gets stronger. So why would we give God anything less than a relationship. I think that really sums it up. So Jesus uses physical illustrations. The birthing process, being born again of water and the spirit. We covered that. The effects of the wind. How the wind blows and affects trees and things around it. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't actually see the wind. So is it with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, you get to know somebody well enough and say, boy, that, that person is really filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't see them. It's not like they open up their chest and there's a glow, you know. But there's an evidence in their life that the Holy Spirit is working. So just like the wind, you can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. He explains the spiritual truth of A, salvation, and the sealing work and the active work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And like I said, when we started this, you're going to see a lot about the Holy Spirit. And I believe that if you get every sermon from John 1 all the way to 21, you will have a greater understanding of the third person of the Godhead, which most people don't have an understanding of. And that's why we go through the scripture verse by verse. So there's the setup for you. I'm going to start with verse 16. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So verse 16 really is a clarion call to salvation. Anyone, everywhere, anytime, from any background, you know, God gave his only begotten son that anybody can come to him at any time and be saved. Just have to believe on that sacrifice. First uh, John 2, 2, the disciple John says that Jesus made propitiation. He appeased God for our sins. He says, but not only us, but for the whole world, the unsaved world, the rebellious world. Right? So Christ's mission was not to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. We're going to go into that in a few verses. But to save the world. And the world's only hope of salvation is to come to faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see this whole sacrificial, we hear the word appeasement, atonement, propitiation. These are all big words. But the bottom line is that sin separates us from God. Period. Right? We're born. We live long enough. We are at the age of accountability uh, we're, we're not children anymore. We understand the concept of sin and what's offensive to God and what's not. And our conscience guides us through that process. Even if we're not born again, our conscience will tell us this is not right. But sometimes we override our conscience. We can do that with an act of our will and continue to engage in sin. So the bottom line is man is hopeless. Men and women are hopeless. And there has to be something that takes place that helps to appease God because he's a righteous and just God and deal with that sin issue. And that was what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. When he died on the cross, he took the sins of the world upon him. How does he do that? I don't know. En masse, aggregately, at that one point in eternity, never to be repeated, the Father and the Son had a, a, a chasm. You know, how, how could this happen? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the Father turned his face away as these sins were being uh, dumped onto Jesus, so to speak. But we believe in the work that he did on the cross, and therefore we have salvation because now we take his identity because he took ours on the cross. There's a switching of identities, and we covered that in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 18, he says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So where does this condemnation come from? Well, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 5. And we're going to cover just two verses. Romans 5, verse 12. Romans 5, 12 and Romans 5, 18. Now, there's a parenthetical statement between verses 13 and 17 that I'm not going to cover until we get into Romans. I just want you to see what started all this and what ends all this. So Romans 5, 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man, meaning Adam, one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So there you have it. If it wasn't Adam, it would have been one of his sons. It would have been you know, one of us. But I, I'm perfectly convinced that he would have done it, and everybody else did it, and therefore sin has spread through all mankind. Now we get all the way to verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, meaning Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. There you have it. Now, the intellects may look at this and go, that's too simple. But see, God set this standard for everyone. 
the rich man, the poor man, the intellect, the non-intellect, the person of base education, the person in, this, in the lower socioeconomic strata, the person up higher in that strata. So he made this perfect system to work so that every single person on the planet could be saved, bar none. You have friends, you have a lot of friends, you have no friends. It doesn't matter. Okay, so this is what you have going on. There was a judgment of the physical, right? Death came upon Adam and Eve. They couldn't live forever anymore. They were banished from the Garden of Eden and also spiritual death. And Jesus came to reverse this. So the only way to break this curse that mankind brought on himself and herself is to be born again. Now, verse 19, he continues, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So to make matters worse, Jesus comes, provides the way, everybody can get to heaven, you would think everybody would jump on this. Well, apparently not. Because the light has come into the world and God has provided a way. Judgment hangs over every person's head who's not saved. But the majority of mankind still prefers sin and wickedness. No, I like the quicksand. It feels good on my body as it envelops me. No, I don't need that branch. And before you know it, you're, you're drowning in this quicksand of sin and wickedness. Christ provided that lifeline to pull us out, but the Bible is very clear. Many would prefer to choose darkness over light. Now, these, this is where I divided the chapter in half, because the first half is great. Jesus came into the world. Jesus came to save the world. Jesus didn't condemn the world. The second half is the world's condemned. And this is what I love about the scripture. You see this in the churches of Revelation. The Lord gives the churches the good news first. Hey, I know your works, I know your patience, I know your love, but this I have against you. This is going to destroy the church if you don't deal with it. So he gives them the good news, he encourages them, and it's, you're able to take the bad news a little bit better when you've been encouraged first. So here's the same thing. He came to save the world, he loves the world, but the world's condemned. Make no mistake about it. Now I want to touch on this concept. There's only three verses that speak about it here, the difference or the contrast between light and darkness. Now, what is that contrast, light and dark? Well, we might think pigmentation. No, it's not what he's speaking about. We might think, well, light, the uh, observable wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum that we understand as light, right? the ultra, ultraviolet to the, you know, the infrared and, and everything in between and the visible light spectrum. No, he's not speaking about that either. When he speaks about light, he's speaking about that spiritual. He's speaking about all God is. God is truth. God is love. God is light. So that's the light. That's the spiritual light. And that's really where we want to go. Spiritual darkness is anything that's opposite that. Rebellion against God. Wickedness. Sin. You know, not caring. Well, you made me God, but I'm going to do what I want now, and I don't care what you think. And this is where darkness comes in. So let's look at those absolutes. And a lot of the world has a problem. Oh, you're, what are you, why are you a moral absolutist? Because it's reflected in the scripture, and that's the way God is. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground. Can't ride the fence in this situation. So when we mature, we bring things into the light. 
especially our faith. Now, this may have been, and I could be wrong, it could be a subtle rebuke of Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus is very accomplished, well-respected in the community. What does he do? He doesn't come to Jesus during the day. While he's doing miracles, he comes at night. He doesn't want to be seen. Well, I'm interested in what you have to say here, but, you know, I could lose my job. I could lose my peers. I could lose financial opportunities. And I believe that as we go through the scripture, Nicodemus at one point does become born again. He gets it. But Nick, Nick at night here, and Jesus is, is saying to him, listen, you know, a little subtle rebuke. You, why are you coming to me in the darkness? Why don't you come to me uh, during the daytime in the light? Now, if we look at the light analogy, John chapter 1, we covered this as well. And in 1 John, which I'm going to read a few scriptures from today, there's this old concept of light and dark. If we look at darkness, how many ways do we do things in darkness so that our deeds are not exposed? Right? When we think about gossip circles, it's protected, it's quiet. Even when it happens in the church, it's not spoken in normal conversation in the hallway, it's in little dark corners. Okay, that's what gossip is. Hey, let's all agree that when we talk about this, that we don't tell anybody else. It's hid. It's in the darkness. You think about secret sin, right? Maybe secret sin on the computer. Well, there's a lot of ways you can get into trouble on the computer. So how do we cover up our deeds being exposed? Passwords, you know, different accounts. I don't want my wife to see this or my kids or anyone else who's using the computer. Or I'll have my own computer in a remote portion of the house that no one else is allowed to touch. So we take that secret sin and we hide it behind firewalls and passwords and things like that. We don't want it exposed. Imagine if, if we, when we got before our church family that our sins would be exposed on our forehead. It would be like a TV screen. We would be terrified now, wouldn't we? Because we want those secret sins to stay in the darkness where they belong. We don't want everybody to, to see it and to, to be exposed. And what's amazing, even as believers, don't we realize that God knows everything and he sees everything? We're concerned about other people seeing our secret sin, darkness, but he sees it all the time and we don't have a problem with that because we become self-deceived after a while. So the darkness resists what? One word, exposure. Doesn't want to be exposed. Now the worst part of it is that when someone is not afraid of exposing their darkness. That's when things are really bad. Because here, normally, we want to keep that hidden. But what about when we are okay with it being exposed? I personally wouldn't buy anything from Abercrombie & Fitch. And if you do, that's your business. I don't judge you. But they have this problem. They keep having these controversies where they take pictures of young girls or young boys with practically no clothes on, all makeuped up, and they take their pictures. This is a darkness that they don't mind living in. They don't even care if it's, if it's not exposed anymore. How is you, as the photographer, take pictures of these little kids? How, how could you be the makeup person and take an eight-year-old girl and slap all that makeup on her knowing what she's going to be getting taken pictures of? How do you do that as a parent? Right? See, this is darkness that now the world's not even afraid of anymore. And that's the society we live in. The absolute worst is when now Christians are not afraid of that exposure. So we're going past what Jesus says here. We're going to the point where Christians are not even afraid of this wickedness being out in, in exposure. I'm going to read a scripture in 1 John. It's only a few verses, two verses. 
1 John 5. I like John's Gospels because he's, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's such an absolutist. I love that. Today, so many people live in the gray area. Well, it's not really wrong, and they try to massage it. You know, I want to remain a Christian. I want to remain in good standing with God, but I want to do these dark things. But, you know, let me massage it so it sounds better and more palatable for everybody. This is what 1 John says in chapter 1, starting with verse 5. He says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The strongest negative that you can find in the Greek grammatical structure. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Liar. Now, I kind of laugh because sometimes I watch the political discussions, and honestly, Republican, Democrat, sometimes on the federal level, there's not much of a difference. They're all in the same clubs. They all have the same health care, which is different from ours. It's a club, you know what I'm saying? It's a good old boys club. But what happens is when a person is clearly lied, even the politicians on the other side, they'll say, the person will say, well, did that person lie? Did the congressman Did the president lie? Well, no. And they even massage it because they're very careful not to call the other side a liar because they're in the same clubs together. We don't want to say today that's a lie because it inflames tensions. But the Bible says you're a liar if you say that you walk with God, but you're walking in darkness. It's right there in the scripture and it can't be massaged. Verse 21, I want to read it again. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So the one who practices the truth is comfortable with living in the light. I think a good example to this is apprehension, um, trepidity, um, about maybe getting involved in some type of maybe spiritual leadership. I'll tell you the truth that If you listen to my messages for the last eight years, speak about what I like, what I don't like, what happens at work, my family life, um, my hobbies. One of some of you can write a biography on Joe DiProsimo just by listening to eight years of messages. And I got to tell you something. At first, it was uncomfortable because I'm stepping into the fishbowl. And I talk to leaders who are considering or those that are considering leadership. And I tell them, you're going to live in a fishbowl. People are going to know everything about you. You need to pray about that. Are you comfortable with that? I'm somewhat comfortable with it because for the last over 10 years in the police department, we've had cameras and uh, microphone packs. So in my uniform, I wear a microphone pack, records everything I say, and there's a camera. And even if I turn the lights on, I don't have to turn the camera on, it turns on itself. Right? And even when I'm going to a hot call, believe it or not, it recorded the last 30 seconds of my conversation. I could be on the phone talking with my wife. So I learned to live in a world where I'm under scrutiny, a microscope. Most people don't want to live under that. And it takes some getting used to because you have to be, I even say, Lord, in this situation, help me not to blow it. Help me not to blunder it, you know, because I'm frail. I need you in this particular situation. So some leaders or some have even said to me, I'm not interested in that. You know, I'm going to pass. And I respect that decision. One of the qualifications of an elder or a pastor is to be blameless. Now, that doesn't mean sinless. But what you say is, listen, if there's something pending, if there's something in your past, get it out now. 
Because I guarantee you, once you step into that leadership role, Satan will find a way to get it out, and he'll make it sound ten times worse than it ever was. And that's what you have it. I was always taught by my pastor, say this over and over again, bring it into the light, speak in the light. Everything you do, let the light shine on it. It's important. So verse 20, it says, if your deeds are evil and you come to the light, your deeds can be exposed or reproved. Well, certainly if I want to hold on to that sin, do I really want it in the spotlight? Heck no. I don't want it to be A, exposed, and I don't want to be rebuked for it. Two, in verse 21, he says, if the person, though, is in the truth and comes to the light, their deeds are clearly seen that they are of God. And this is the litmus test for any controversy or any spiritual issue. Is it in the dark? Is it secret? Is it protected? Either bring it into the light or reject it. Or reject it, even if it comes your way. You know, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I heard this, but you got, let's, let's lower our voice, let's go into the corner. Pss, 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 pss. And they're talking about another person or another situation. You say to them, wait a minute, you got to speak a little louder and a little slower. Why? Because I'm going to take notes, and when you're done, I'm going to give it to the person that you're talking about. You know? That's something I made up, but my pastor used to say, can I quote you? So if, you're, if you want to say something about another person or a situation, be prepared to be quoted. Otherwise, be quiet. And if you hear it, you have to reject it if it's not being brought out into the light. Very, very clear in Scripture. Any controversy, that's the litmus test that you use. Right? Verse 21. He says, the deeds are being clearly seen as from God. Now, this can also encompass, check this out, a third thing that we didn't speak about yet was conviction and repentance. Remember, as the cliche goes, God always allows U-turns. And that's the beauty of God. I'm going to use my own parable. I made it up. You might like it. You might not like it. But you could take the dirtiest stain on a garment, and if you put it out in the sunlight for two weeks and you let the sun shine on it, any of those stains will eventually become lighter. They'll be bleached. And that's the truth. The sun is not only a bleaching agent, but it's also a disinfectant. It kills mold and other things if you leave it out on your porch and the sunlight is over it. So that the dirtiest, awful, most disgusting stain will become clean. And I will tell you, that's true in our lives too. Never be afraid to come clean because it's cathartic, it's freeing. But then somebody might use it against me. That's what people do. That's what people do, you know. But for your own spiritual welfare, it's good to bring it out into the light. It's, it's freeing. When we continue to run from conviction and repentance, we become what I called spiritual fugitives. You know, we're on the 10 most wanted spiritual fugitive list. And then we say, gee, I don't understand. My life is not right. My life is a mess. Yes, because you're running from that conviction and repentance. Right? I tell you what, we... We bring people in and, uh, you know, they've been running and running on the lamb for so long in the criminal world that sometimes it's just a relief to be caught. Yeah, believe it or not, we'll sit, we'll have a good conversation. I'll share my food with them, you know what I'm saying? The guys are laughing at me because I'm always eating uh, on shift. But, you know, I'll sit with anybody and just talk to them and treat them like human beings. And it's just so freeing for them that they finally got caught so they don't have to run anymore. And it's the same thing spiritually. A lot of you are shaking your heads on this one. You know, and you know, and I know, I've been busted before for things I shouldn't have done, you know, as a believer, and it just felt good getting busted, 
sweating because I don't know how much they know about what I did, coming clean and then moving forward and hugging, shaking hands, kissing, and then moving forward. So don't be a spiritual fugitive. That's my two cents there. What we may find as well is the more we live a godly life, the more comfortable we're living in the light, what happens now? You reflect your light onto others because now you're free. Now you can be, as, as Heather taught, the empty vessels, you know, the vessels of honor last night in the women's study. A lot of you were there. You know, we become now an empty vessel for God to fill us, and then we spill over onto others. But watch this. Some people like the spillover. Some people don't like it. Maybe that group now that you were hanging with, and that starts to spill over, they become convicted. They're not happy that you're changed, and they may dislike you for no reason. Right? The bottom line is this. Who do we want to please? Do we want to please those that are close to us, or do we want to please God? And what do we do that by pleasing God, that we offend those that are close to us? What do you want to do? It's, it's your choice. And I'll tell you this, if you don't know the Lord, and you're trying to please your friends who are unbelievers, and they want you to stay there, and you come to the Lord... Um, and you reject the Lord because you want to please your, your peer group, you do it to your own condemnation. Because it's very clear, the world is condemned. We are living in a world that's condemned. The only hope, the only solution, the only lifeline is Jesus Christ. Now the next section is a testimony of John the Baptist regarding Christ and a few lessons we can learn from his example of leadership. Whenever we talk about leadership, it's always good to look at those figures in the Bible that God has set his approval on, that, that, and I don't even think, even think John knew about these five points, but we can take it simply from his mannerisms and his behavior. So verse 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and they're all coming to him. John's response, a man can receive nothing unless it is being given to him from heaven. So the first point that we see is this, a simple theological discussion. Hey, let's talk, about, let's talk about purification. How many times should we wash? When should we wash? And all of a sudden, it starts to change. The conversation morphs into a, a, a discussion about really division among leadership between John and Christ. See, it's so easy and so subtle for these conversations to just turn to the one side or to the other. I've been told by our keyboardist, James, awesome guy, he said this, it's a baseball expression, and it's actually gone through the church. I've heard it mentioned several times. He said, there's a deep bench at Calvary Chapel Crossfield. Now, what he meant by that is when I'm not in the pulpit, either Pastor Vinny is or Pastor Mike or Pastor Paul, and these guys are awesome speakers. So there's a deep bench. If, I, if I'm not up at bat, there's somebody else to, to pinch hit for me and, and take my place. Now, that doesn't bother me. As a matter of fact, I love it. I mean, I had somebody... Uh, a few months ago, say, I love it when Pastor Vinny speaks. I said, I love it when Pastor Vinny speaks too, you know? <laughs> so, you know, are we going to build up each other or are we going to tear each other down? This isn't a competition. This isn't a game. This isn't a joke. 
This is about us all working together as a team to feed the body. I was just in prayer with my ushers uh, in, in the ushers room and just thanking God for these ushers. These guys do everything. This is a team effort. This isn't about one person. When it becomes me-centered, that's where the problems in leadership take place. And we're not going to have that here. Except for the case of Jesus himself, I'm really suspect of, okay, I could be off on this, but it's just my opinion. It's like Joe DiProsimo Ministries. You'll never see that here. It isn't about Joe DiProsimo. It's about the work that God is doing through this church. God could take me out and put somebody in here to take my place. Now, I see some of these ego-driven ministries, and it's, I just don't agree with them. Except, or I'm going to say, even for the average believer, competition and comparison, don't get caught up in it. I've seen it destroy friendships, and it's because of jealousy. You could be a childhood friend. A lot of you are shaking your heads. Well, you're very expressive today. You know? Childhood friends in their 20s and 30s and 40s, boom, the friendship's done. Why? Because one person got something that the other person did, and there arises a jealousy, and it becomes a wedge. You all, if you've lived long enough, have seen this and dealt with it, and it'll rip your friendship apart. You know what? Somebody gets something that you know and you love and they're close to, God bless them. Oh, that, praise God, you got blessed. That's the way it should be. Verse 27. The second point, John's response to the vision, what did he do? Oh, yeah, wow. Jesus has, oh, I've got 10 disciples. He's got, he's got 50 already. He didn't do that, by the way. <laughs> we read the scripture. He didn't feed into it. He was grateful for what God gave him in his limited ministry. So there's, an, there's a, an issue of humility there versus pride. And you can tell a lot about a person when something is removed from them. Minor screw up, minor mess up, and, or even in the church, a, a spiritual situation and a, a position is removed from them. Try to take a, a, bat, a rattle away from a baby. They'll scream bloody murder. Sometimes adults do that too, but in a different way. Are we okay with that? Are we saying, well, it was just for a season, you know, God knows. Or do we scream and fight and kick mine, my ministry, my people? I don't own anybody here. I got news for you, and that's not my attitude. You can come and go as you please. All I want to do is give you an opportunity to hear the word. If you're not saved, to be saved. If you're a, an immature believer, that you grow through the word. It isn't me. It's, I'm using good material here. I mean, you, you just can't beat it. It's God's word. Knowing John the Baptist's character, even when he had... Even when he had people still coming to him, well, then why did John keep doing that? Well, if it didn't, wasn't it a natural competition if Jesus had all these disciples and John's still out there making disciples? No, because I believe, if I know John the Baptist, that he figured, well, Jesus, he's, he's in the form of a man. He's God in the flesh. But when I start amassing people over here because he's over there, I'm going to point them to him. That's, that's, that's a real man of character. I want to read something from Warren Wearsby. I couldn't say it better myself in his book, Be Alive, about this situation on page 57. He says, often press releases and book reviews cross my desk, along with conference folders, and at times I'm perturbed by what I read. He says this a little sarcastically. Very few speakers and writers are ordinary people. They are world travelers or noted lecturers who have addressed huge audiences. They're always in great demand, and their ministries are described in such a way that would make the Apostle Paul a midget by comparison. A Presbyterian pastor in Melbourne, Australia, introduced J. Hudson Taylor by using many superlatives, especially the word great. Taylor stepped up to the pulpit and quietly said, Dear friends, 
I am the little servant of an illustrious master, end quote. If John the Baptist in heaven heard that statement, he must have shouted, hallelujah. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I have said I am not the Christ. He's reminding them. But I have been sent before. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Third point. Understanding being under authority and our place in the kingdom. Some want it all. Some get into ministry and they see, wow, I could really make a name for myself. They become megalomaniacs when it comes to ministry. Not John the Baptist. I love this wedding analogy he uses. Jesus is the groom, right? The Bible tells us that we are the bride, the church, collectively. And he's the groom. And he's, he's, in a spiritual way, married us. He's gathered us together. He wants to take us to his home in heaven. And you've got that whole uh, illusion about the wedding ceremony and bringing uh, the bride to the father's house. John is the friend of the groom who really is just the best man. That's what we would understand in our culture. John's the best man. And he's happy for the two of them. Understand that the best man is nothing more than an assistant to the groom. And he has a limited relationship with the bride. He doesn't live with the bride. He doesn't develop a relationship with the bride. He's there to help the groom in getting everything together and getting the wedding set up. And in those days, the best man really helped because this wedding ceremony could last for days. It was a big feast and there was a lot to do and a lot of food and everything had to be set up. So the best man had a a crucial role, not with the bride, but with the groom. And I got to tell you, this is definitely under inspiration of the Holy Spirit because the parable is flawless. It's a perfect analogy. So John the Baptist is the prophet, greatest prophet that ever lived. And although he had a limited role, his joy was completely fulfilled. Now, we can look at this and see things for somebody else or for the pastor, but we need to see things for ourselves. Every person here needs to look at this and say, what can I get out of this? My question to you is, is your joy fulfilled by the limited role that God gave you? Because we all have a limited role. None of us have an unlimited role, starting with me. It is a limited role. We all fit together as a a crucial part of the body in Christ. Are we the type of person that always needs more? Let's talk about spiritual things. Let's talk about physical things. No matter what we get in life, and that was me before I got saved. I just, it had to be bigger this, it had to be a faster car, it had to be, you know, just all kinds of stupid stuff. I really don't want to go too much into it. There's like a check valve that just cuts me off. But the point I'm trying to make is that that's okay, I guess, as a non-believer because we live in darkness. But as a believer, you know what that will do? That will cause us incredible pain and unhappiness when we're not fulfilled with what God gave us. Because then what we do is we start looking around. We start looking at our friends. We start looking at other people in the church, and it develops a jealousy. Do you see the path to darkness? It starts with something simple. Oh, I'm just not happy. Oh, I just didn't get enough. Oh, I'm not fulfilled. Then you start, your eyes start wandering. Is your joy fulfilled with the role that God gave you in your life, in the world, as a Christian, in ministry? Because John's was. 
John's was. Now, some will say, but Pastor Joe, you don't know my past. I had a hard upbringing. Things were very difficult. Let's look at John the Baptist. He had a hard upbringing, a very hard upbringing. Most likely his parents died when he was young. He, uh, they were elderly when he was born. He lived in the wilderness. He didn't get the opportunities. Let's talk about today. Let's talk about John. John didn't get the opportunities that everybody else in society had. He didn't get to go to the best schools. He wasn't college educated. Furthermore, he had a hard ministry. He had a hard ministry. All these negatives and an untimely death. He was murdered in his 30s. Now, if we looked at someone today in our culture and read that, say, oh, what a hard life. But if you talk to John, he would say, hey, my joy is fulfilled. This is awesome. I get to be a part of God's plan. Everything we see in the scripture, we have to be able to take and apply it to our lives. Otherwise, we're wasting our time on a Sunday morning. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Four. The focus always should be on Christ. This is where we have trouble in life, when he ceases to be the focus. John the Baptist had it great. So many worldly remedies that Christians are following for their fulfillment, but they're missing the obvious. And sometimes they get annoyed when you point it out to them. You, they do. Well, you know, you, you really should get more involved. You really should get to know other brothers and sisters. You really should have an accountability partner. You really should commit your life to the Lord. Commit your life to the things of the Lord. You should commit your life to being other-centered, giving to others. Hey, can't you see that I'm struggling right now? I don't want to hear about other people. That's the whole point. The whole point is what, when we do what we're designed to do as believers, things do get better. We have a purpose. We have a role. We have fulfillment. But many Christians are looking at worldly remedies. And if you point it out, they get annoyed with you. Well, then why did you ask to see me in my office? You know the answer I'm going to give you. So that's something to look at. Anything but committing to Jesus. Well, let me try this, this, and this, and it doesn't work, Pastor. I will listen to you. You're already going down the wrong road. You're not putting him first. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Right? Verse 31. The last few verses. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. It should say actually in the translation to him at the end of that. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And that word is not used very often in that context. John the Baptist testifies of Christ's origin, his deity, and his mandate. 33, he who receives the Lord's testimony attests that God is true. When you read these words, you cannot not be moved by them. You cannot not think about something. If you don't know the Lord and you're reading Jesus' words and you're reading the words of sacred scripture and there's not something going on inside of you, you're, you really need to pray to God because you're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. These are the words of God. And every man that reads his words and listens to what Christ said, the Son, attests that God is true because these words have power 
they have life. And we must adhere to his words. Verse 34, and he doesn't give a measure, or God hasn't given his son a measure of the Holy Spirit as he does to men. Christ and the Spirit were one. Christ worked in concert with the Spirit. That's why when he did these miracles and the the teachers accused him of doing these powers through Satan, Jesus says they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because we're working together down here, you know? This is a, you know, we're both in partnership in what we're doing here. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And we'll cover that. The fifth point and last point. Those that reject him, verse 36, do it to their own peril. Their own peril. Some of you are here today and you're still under God's wrath. I don't know who you are. Everybody could tell me when they walk out, hey, brother, I'm a Christian. Praise the Lord. Shake my hand. I don't interrogate anybody to find out if they really are or they're not. That's between them and the Lord. But some are under wrath. And sometimes I say to my wife and and I think about it and I'm like, you know, I cannot believe the things that I did, the wildness that I was before I was a Christian. If I would have died, and I came close a few times, I would be perishing. And God had mercy on me and gave me 20-something years to finally get it through my head that I needed him. And I'm thankful to him and that's why I serve him. Why do I serve them? Why do I do the things they do? I'm grateful because I was under wrath. I was living under wrath. Today, you don't have to live under wrath anymore. But let me tell you this, and I'm seeing this a lot in the church lately. Christians are weak-willed. They can't make decisions. They can't make hard decisions that are strong decisions. But let me tell you this, and it's been said. I wish I said it, but I didn't. Indecision in this area will prove to be a fatal decision. Sitting on the fence is a decision. Indecision is a decision. So if you're sitting here and you're passive about salvation, you're still under wrath. But, but I didn't take a side of the devil. But you didn't accept the way to salvation. Right? Passively listening to evil. Passively being around where evil is being engaged. You're complicit. We see that in a New Jersey penal code. Right? You can be complicit in certain crimes just by being there when the stuff is being formed. Conspiracy. So I, I urge you today, don't leave here. If, you, if, I, if I haven't made it clear, and that's okay, don't take offense, come talk to me after service and tell me, you, you, you didn't make sense, I didn't understand it, please explain it more. I won't be offended. I will explain it more to you or any of the, the, the leaders here. So the concept in this chapter is two sides of a loving God. It was all warm and encouraging last Sunday. Today is a little bit more convicting because there are two sides of a loving God. He is loving. And the problem is people just want that one side. However, when we read on, in the newspaper or we look on TV and we see a judge who's constantly letting off a child molester, we're angry. And we want that judge removed. So would we expect anything less from God? It offends our sense of justice for the weakest in society. God is not going to let his heaven be turned into the mess that we've turned this world into. It's not going to have it. He's a God of justice. But he's also a God of mercy. There's two sides of him. And a good parent doesn't just want to be your friend. They're a parent of justice and what's right, and I'm going to stand on this, and they're a parent of mercy. And that is a perfect model of our perfect family, our perfect God, perfect Father in heaven. So here's the deal this morning. Let's boil it all down. We will all choose which side of God we will face. 
Those of us who have passed under the blood, those of us who have looked as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and we looked at Christ being lifted up on that cross and took the punishment for our sin, those of us, when we go to see our God and we die and take our last breath, he's going to be like this, smiling, open arms, ah, let me hug you, you're here with me. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. If we refuse and we're indecisive and we don't make a decision, and we haven't trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we see him, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be the exact opposite. But we get to choose what we want to do. Let me just read the last three verses, and I'll wrap it up, or read them again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, everyone, he who, believes in him, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Choose him, choose now, don't wait until it's too late. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your...